This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. On this week's episode, I'll be looking at China's role in the Ukraine war, the protests in Iran, and the controversy at the heart of the Society of Authors. First up, Owen Matthews writes in his cover piece about the secretive but decisive role that China is playing in the Ukraine war. He joins me now, along with The Spectator's Cindy Yu. Owen, to start with, you write, both in your piece and in your new book, Overreach, about the back channels that exist between China and the US. Could you tell our listeners a little about these revelations? The key revelation, which I found out about back in April through an old contact of mine, who I've known for nearly 30 years, uh, who works very closely with the Chinese government, um, was that at the beginning of the war, China played an unexpectedly decisive role in drawing a line in the sand over NATO involvement. And that's significant for all kinds of ways, in in all kinds of ways, primarily because at that moment when the war was very fluid and it was not really clear what NATO's support would be, the Chinese intervened when it was reported that the US was supporting the Polish military's offer of 30-odd MiG-29s, Soviet-era fighter jets to the Ukrainian Air Force. And through a back channel that involved uh, retired European leaders who had had long-standing contacts with uh, the Chinese, a message was passed very quickly to Washington that this was unacceptable to China, or specifically that NATO's strategic involvement in Ukraine was unacceptable. Hmm. And while those, the, the provision of those MiGs, they were basically museum pieces, I don't think it would have done anything particularly materially to change the course of the war, neither was this really on the level of a formal deal or contract. But nonetheless, it's an understanding that was reached and one that has stuck. Hmm. And crucially, what we've seen in Bali is that actually that track to what diplomats call track two, either you know the back channel initiative, has now become track one. It's become official policy hmm. insofar as you see the Indians, the Chinese, and the Americans all jointly coming out to condemn the use of nuclear weapons. And very importantly, she did not, Chinese president did not meet with the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, in Bali. And you know clearly the... Nuclear issue is something which the Chinese and NATO actually see very, very much eye to eye on. And the quid pro quo of that is that the Chinese essentially offered that they would do everything possible to restrain Putin from using nukes and also effectively not to support Putin economically or or militarily. So while they've played lip service to the deal they struck publicly back in February, which was a treaty of eternal friendship or unlimitless friendship, I beg your pardon, on February the 4th between Putin and Xi personally, they paid lip service to that diplomatic support, more or less. Hmm. But in practical terms, the Chinese were stuck 
to actually not really helping. They haven't provided drones. They haven't provided the chips. They haven't provided the, you know, serious, as far as we know, military support of any kind. And that's actually been tremendously important in shaping the Russian response, or rather crippling Russia's ability to wage its war in Ukraine. Cindy, for, for those who've been paying attention to the public rhetoric between China and the, the US since the start of the war, I think it's fair to say that China's position on the Ukraine war has been quite hard to pin down at times. So I wonder what you make of, of these revelations that, that Owen puts in his piece. So I think that Owen's revelations basically line up with my read of the Chinese position on this, which is that China is in it for itself and it will get whatever advantages it can get from the war, whether that's cheaper Russian oil and gas, uh, whether that's, you know, this kind of direct line to, to DC. But at the same time, it's also going to want to lambast the West for its, you know, NATO expansionism in order to kind of fulfill this narrative, this wolf warrior narrative that China has, that the West is just basically out to interfere with everyone. Mm. And I think it can basically do two things at both these things at once. And if you look at the rhetoric in the lead up to the February invasion, it was all about NATO expansionism. It was all about how Russia would never invade because, um, you know, Russia's not that kind of country. Then it was interesting because the invasion happened and the Chinese went quiet for a few days. On social media, you know, there was no particular line that the foreign ministry knew which to take. And then they took weeks to get Chinese citizens out of Ukraine because there were quite a few thousands of students there. So I think from all that could be seen publicly from that very turbulent time, the Chinese were caught relatively off guard, at least to the extent of the of the size of the invasion. Um, so I think on that respect, I think I, I totally agree with Owen that the Chinese have just been in it for themselves. They're not really on the Russian side, but they're not really on the Western side either. But before anyone gets excited, I don't think the Chinese are going to be bringing this war to a close anytime soon. They're going to be keep sitting on the fence in order to satisfy their interests. Owen, you, as you said earlier, it, it was not so long ago that China and Russia had boasted about this friendship, this friendship without limits. Do you think then it was a, a, a miscalculation on Putin's part to overestimate the, the degree of uh, Chinese support? Indeed. Yes, exactly, Will. Yeah, you touch it with a needle. This is, I think, there was a very major miscalculation. I mean, not in, I mean, somewhat forgivable, because if you see the, the wording of that treaty that was signed, it really is on the, on the page, looks like a major strategic partnership. But the key part of it which was a confidential, so far not publicized, part of that agreement, of, which was reached on February 4th, whereby Russia got something it had been lobbying for for a long time, both through the, its membership of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and bilaterally, and that was essentially NATO Article 5 Mutual Security Pact. And that was finally, after years of Russian lobbying, China finally agreed, but they agreed in a very clever way. So the actual wording of that clause, which I haven't actually seen, but my source tells me that crucially, it did not include any territories that Russia had annexed in Ukraine or would annex in the course of war. So that's a really important get out clause mm. for Beijing. It's very cunning. But clearly, I think that the Russians saw that as like the last piece in the jigsaw puzzle, or one of the last pieces in the jigsaw puzzle. So in other words, having secured China protecting their back, at least you know, as a backstop that 
NATO would not directly attack Russia because China was its mutual security partner, I think was not the decisive factor. I think Putin's mind was probably made up by the beginning of February that they were going to do it. But it was nonetheless an element in that false sense of security that led them to that terrible brink and that, that, that fateful decision to go to war. They thought the Chinese had their back. The Chinese did not have their back. They actually did not help really economically. And in fact, as we know, you know, in practice, not from their words, but from their practice, a huge number of Chinese banks and companies, including Sinochem and all kinds of crucial banks, and also the Chinese union pay system, by the way, all pulled out of Russia, and they have not been supply- supplying them with military supplies either. Cindy, we, we hear a lot about how China is looking at the war in, in Ukraine and, and taking lessons from it in regards to Taiwan mm-hmm. and what the possible possible aggressive action in Taiwan might lead to in terms of a kind of global reaction. What do you think are the lessons that China is getting from from the war? And do you think that plans are changing accordingly? I think there's, first of all, there's a military lesson, which is that the Chinese army has been so influenced by and supplied by the Russian side. This is a relationship that goes back to Soviet days, really. That looking at the Russian army floundering on the ground in Ukraine will tell people in China, tell people in Beijing who are on the military side, okay, we need to look at the People's Liberation Army again. What are the equipment that doesn't work? What are the strategies that don't work? And we can see that playing out in real time in Ukraine at the moment. Obviously, it's a slightly different terrain because Taiwan will be an amphibious landing, which would be even more hard than going across land um, as in Ukraine. So that's that lesson. There's also this question of sanctions from the West and just how heavy and and United for now, I mean, for the most of this year, actually, the West really has been when it comes to sanctioning Russia. Again, different different contexts because China is so much more integrated into the world economy. But I do think that before February, there was this narrative building that was taking place in Russia and in China that following Afghanistan, following Trump, all of these turbulent moments that the West has had over the last few years, that the West is not united anymore. It's what we Chinese call a sand shower, it's a pile of sand. But what I think the Ukrainian invasion has shown is that actually this pile of sand can be coalesced together again. And the Chinese will be thinking, okay, what would be the same similar kind of thing happening here? And I think also the last thing it would be that China, through cooperating or through behaving nicely on Russia, is also hoping for a bit more leeway on Taiwan as well. So this week, as we're speaking, the defense secretaries of the US and China are meeting. And bilaterals have really increased since the G20 meeting. Um, So it's very interesting to see, um, especially in light of Owen's piece as well. But for China, of course, they don't want nuclear war. But the core interest, what they call the core of the core interest, is still Taiwan. So they want the Americans to basically respect that China is an international player that behaves most of the time, but that for Taiwan is just an absolute red line that they don't, do not want to change the status quo from the US side by declaring it independent or something else. And so they're hoping for some kind of leeway back and forth bargain there as well. So Owen, so Cindy said earlier that we shouldn't hold our breath when it comes to for hoping that, that, that China might play the role of peacemaker when it comes to the Ukraine war. But I wondered, you know, Macron has has made it clear that he thinks that that Xi could be instrumental in bringing an end to the war sooner. Is is he being too optimistic or is Cindy being too pessimistic? I think that there is one concrete area where the Chinese actually could play a role, and that is a sort of face-saving off-ramp in terms of Chinese security guarantees to Russia, which would be balanced against 
NATO security guarantees to Ukraine. Now, in fact, that those those guarantees already exist. In fact, so you'd actually be restating basically an existing status quo. But nonetheless, in terms of you know the sellability by Putin or any kind of uh, replacement of Putin, assuming that that replacement occurs in some kind of orderly, uh, in, you know, intra-Kremlin way, the sort of Khrushchev scenario which people are talking about. You know. But anyway, whatever the Kremlin administration that finally finalizes this deal, I think some kind of appeal to Chinese security guarantees to balance against NATO expansion and some sort of you know grand deal about Ukrainian neutrality, I think, will probably in the, be in the mix. But just to add to what Cindy said, I think there was another, from my, my understanding, uh, conversations with uh, with my Chinese source, another lesson that was and a real sort of shocker for the Chinese was they had been told by Putin that there was going to be a military operation uh, on, on February the 4th. They knew that. They had been told that it was going to be a limited military operation and Putin assured them that it was going to be the recovery of a lost Russian province, which actually sort of tracks with the, Ta- the, the, the China-Taiwan. And I think the Chinese were very shocked at the scale of the, mm. uh, of, of the invasion. But most importantly, they were shocked by the sudden superpower that private companies discovered, is that we had seen previously you know, uh, sovereign sanctions by states. For the first time in history, we have 1,400 major multinationals and companies pulling out and actually causing far more damage to the Russian economy than any sovereign sanctions. And that part shocked not only the Russians, but it shocked the Chinese too. And I think that part has also given them pause. It's a dimension that they had not hitherto considered about their possible Taiwan operation. And I think the Chinese also have a role to play when the war ends in rebuilding Ukraine. Yeah. Again, this is the Chinese interest here. I mean, even before the war, Belt and Road Initiative was already in Ukraine and China had billions of dollars of business interest in the country. Now that the country is war-torn and war-ravaged, I think the Chinese are going to want to get their own state-owned companies going back in there, building roads, building hospitals, railways, all that sort of stuff, and trying to get some kind of diplomatic brownie points for that whilst getting economic contracts as well. So, Thank you, Owen and Cindy. Next... In the magazine, Harriet Sargent has written about how the Iranian regime is cracking down on protesters and how young Iranian protesters in London are reacting. She joins me now alongside Ali Ansari, founding director of the Institute for Iranian Studies. Harriet, to begin, could you tell our listeners a little bit about the background? Who is protesting and why are they protesting? This is a revolution that's been sort of started and driven by women and by very young women. That's what shocked me. I think that the statistic that I heard that summed it all up was the fact that the second in command of the of the um, revolutionary guards says the average age of the protester that they are arresting is 15. And a good deal of those are young 15 year old girls. I mean, your mind just boggles if you can just imagine these, you know, these big grown-up men arresting these 15-year-olds and younger for protesting. So Iran really, the Iran regime really seems to be at war with its children. Yes. And Ali, I wondered if um, you wrote this very good piece on, on the Spectator website this week in which you asked whether the protesters in Iran are going to be put to death, which is something which has been threatened most recently by by 227 members of the Iranian parliament. I mean, do you think that we should worry about these threats or is it a, is it sort of fake news as some have branded it? 
No, I mean, I, I, I think they already are putting them to death, really. I mean, this is part of the problem. I mean, they're already shooting them in the streets, you know, so it's it's not as if it is something unusual. And I, and I think what I was trying to emphasise, even in that piece, is that, yes, you know, Parliament in Iran is showing a little bit of its sort of political exuberance in trying to show its loyalty to the regime. And obviously doesn't have the um, authority to go around sentencing people to death, but it's a very odd situation where parliamentary deputies get up and start to declare that, uh, you know, elements certainly among the protesters are enemies of God and heretics and this sort of thing. And of course, you know, what they're doing is that they're showing, you know, what the regime normally does is it sort of basically uh, wants to sort of designate its opponents as really beyond the pale and beyond the reach in the sense of the law or any other protection of the law, even if there was such a thing in Iran, to be honest. So, I mean, the, the problem here is there is sound, I suppose, experience in a sense there have been cases in the past where obviously the regime has shown no qualms whatsoever in, in basically sentencing protesters to death. There's no, very little, I should say, I would probably say no due process as we would understand it. The mm. judiciary is certainly not independent. And, you know, they can condemn people to death for what we might consider quite trivial things. So it's, yeah, so I think it's something we need to take very seriously. I just actually think this is appalling, the, the, the reaction of the left to this. Because when this came out, a lot of people on the left suddenly kind of said, oh, well, this is nothing to get, this is fake news, this is nothing to get worked up about, and, you know, there's enough awful stuff going on in Iran without creating fake news. And I have to say, being no expert on Iran, I mean, I read through this quite carefully a number of times, and I spoke to Iranian friends, and the words that the parliament have used are very frightening. I would send a chill down the spine of any Iranian protester or any family member of the protesters. And it is the equivalent of, you know, an act against God. It is the equivalent of us using the final solution. That's a phrase that sends chills down our, I mean, our spine. So you can't just dismiss this. And for them- Yeah, absolutely. To, yeah, just Sorry. to reinforce that. I mean, and, 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 and I, did, I mean, the, the whole point of it is to create terror in the population. And, you know, when they say, oh, you know, we've got the, the finer points of the judicial process in Iran wrong. Well, you know, I'd say, why don't you explain to us what the finer, you know, details of the judicial process in Iran are? You know, yeah. frankly, many people in Iran aren't aware of these finer points. So, I mean, I think that there's an issue here that people, I think, focusing, you know, we can't see the wood for the trees, basically. We're so focused on these particularities that we're missing the wider point that this is a society, this is a regime that has no qualms about sentencing people to death on the most trivial of issues. And I mean, one of the things, actually, because I just didn't have enough space to put in, was an actual quote from the Wall Street Journal uh, Iranian correspondent, who is a Danish man who has spent time in, in Iran and Afghanistan, so should know what he's talking about. And who's saying, you know, actually, and I think this is the left's problem, kind of Islamophobic to be against the Iranian, you know, this Iranian regime. Well, I'm sorry, this is goes far beyond Islamophobic. This is this is about the, the possible slaughter of very young people. Surely one can set aside one's kind of political considerations for that. I, I wonder, Harriet, if we could uh, talk about the the Iranian protesters that you spoke to in London. So pro protesting, hoping their message will will be received in Iran. What 
was the message that they they what was the message that you got from them? What did they make of the threats that are coming out of of the regime? Well, they they told me that it it was very chilling and that it was designed exactly as as you said it was designed to instill terror in the protesters. That is why the Iranian parliament very carefully picked its words, and that's what it's meant to do. I found it incredibly moving going to this protest because there were so many disparate groups there that the, the terror of the regime had united all kinds of different people. You know, there were people, there were sort of elderly, very elegant ladies that had come over when the Shah had left. And then after them, I spoke to a girl, a teacher, who's only just come here two weeks ago, who had been demonstrating with her pupils And as so happens with this regime, her brother and her mother had been threatened to try and stop her. And from what she sort of indicated to me, her brother had actually been tortured to put pressure on her. So that's why she had left. And Ali, I I wonder if if you could speak a little from a, perhaps from a historical perspective. I mean, do you think that the Iranian regime feels genuinely threatened by the scale of the protests, which don't seem like they're going away. Is it actually a, a threat to the regime's power? I, I think they do see it. I think they, they will present a, a sort of a, a position of sort of confidence, bordering on complacency, to be honest, mm-hmm. because obviously what they want to do is to give the impression that they are fully in control. I mean, it's very important for them to be able to say that because they'll be acutely aware that in 1978, when the Shah appeared to lose control, then that was it. I mean, that was up for him. So they don't want to be in that same position. But I think, as Harriet has said, you know, what they're facing here is something quite distinct. It's young, lots of women, not only women, of course. I mean, lots of men are involved, too, and very supportive of the, of, of the women's situation. And if you talk to Iranians, of course, they say it's not about women's rights. It's about rights. It's just about rights in general. You know, it's just that women have been the catalyst. And it's also deeply ideological. So there is a very big ideological gulf that has emerged between the regime and younger people in Iran. But, you know, by younger people, let's not eliminate, I think, a vast majority of the population who are very supportive of the young, if I can think it that way. I mean, yes, the young are on the streets. But, you know, as I sort of said in some other pieces, you know, what you're really seeing here is a sort of a guerrilla, a guerrilla warfare, in a sense, between the protesters who have the, the support of the wider hinterland. I mean, a lot of people are very supportive of what they're doing. So, I mean, I think one of the other things that you can tell is even this statement by the parliament, whatever they said in, in origin, they moved very quickly to try and do damage limitation on it, obviously, mm-hmm. and to qualify it very heavily. Because I think they understood, of course, that a lot of people were very offended by what they said. And you only have to see the reaction of the footballer the, ahead of the England-Iran game. It was very striking. Mm-hmm. Uh, here you have, you know, Iran is a football-mad country. And yet, Actually, nobody's interested in the World Cup. The footballers themselves stood in stony silence when the national anthem was being sung out. Nobody sang it. I mean, there's clearly a huge amount of dismay, I think, in wider society at the way in which the authorities are handling this. And people have basically come to the conclusion that the authorities are so disconnected with the needs and demands of ordinary people that, you know, the the things have have, have reached a a, a real turning point, I'm afraid. It's not a case anymore of people saying, as I've heard some people say, oh, well, you know, they could maybe relax the veiling laws and they could tweak this and tweak that. The age of, you know, the time for tweaking is long over, I'm sorry to say. I mean, either they're going to have to have some really important structural changes, which, you know, for them would mean regime change, of course, or the, the whole thing is going to crumble. 
Thank you, Harriet and Ali. Finally, Julie Bindle says in the magazine this week that the society of authors is no longer fit for purpose. She joins me now to tell me more, alongside Tom Holland, historian, author and former chair of the society. Julie, to start us off, could you tell us a little bit, for those who don't know, what is the Society of Authors and why do you think it has failed its members? Well, the Society of Authors is a professional body that is supposed to represent all authors, all published authors, illustrators, interpreters, translators and the like. And its job is kind of like a union, but it's it's too posh for a union in my view. It It's supposed to represent us nevertheless. I mean, for example with contracts for those particularly that don't have agents or where they think they have a bad deal with rights and with any of the deal that might be pursued on their behalf that is found wanting. But also because we're published and because, of course, you know, with 12,000 members across a wide range of disciplines, of fiction, non-fiction, children's books, young adult, some quite contentious issues, we're also supposed to be protected in terms of our speech and anything that falls within the law and common decency should be protected and we should be protected from censorious individuals that wish to only hear one side of a particular debate. And so that's what the Society of Authors is supposed to do. And it's in particular the kind of free speech element that has been found wanting. And could you just explain for our listeners the details of the controversy that, that has, has led you to that conclusion? Well, the, the controversy began in earnest, or I suppose rather the media picked up on the controversy in August after the attempted murder of Salman Rushdie. And of course, you know, we were all horrified that this had occurred and that Rushdie had been the attempts to silence him had been of the very worst and most violent nature over the years, decades. And of course, J.K. Rowling, who knows Rushdie, was a great admirer of his, tweeted how sick to her stomach she felt, how distressed and upset she was. And of course, she spoke as an author and a human being, someone with a beating heart. And it had been already noted Remember, this is not a new controversy for those of us that have been in the the gender battle, as it's become to be known. This is not new for us because we have found over the, the years that those of us that take what can be seen as the wrong side of the, the debate, in other words, we speak out against trans orthodoxy that we believe clashes with women's rights, we haven't been protected. We have not been allowed a voice. We have had our speech curtailed, despite it being well within the law and in fact completely relevant and necessary. So after Rowling's tweet, she received two death threats and the chair, in our view, in those of us that actually wrote an open letter to the chair, Joanne Harris, thought that it very clearly was actually taking the mickey. It was very clearly being trivial and pointing to Rowling, who, of course, takes a different side of the argument on the gender debate, as does Harris, as as something that was funny. It was quite funny that she was speaking out about these 
death threats and the implication from Harris and many of Harris's supporters was that Rowling was trying to make this all about herself and it was anything but. So a few of us got together. We'd already been talking, many of us over the years, that we feel that we've been let down by the Society of Authors and decided to write an open letter. We decided enough is enough. And that letter was hosted on my substack and gathered a few hundred signatures. And then, of course, counter letter was hosted elsewhere, which gathered more signatures. And so it was a polarised debate. It was clear it was polarised. And I suppose gloves were off. Tom, you are a previous chair of the Society of Authors, although we must stress here that you're not speaking in any official capacity no, today. I, I absolutely um, have to stress that. Yes, of course. I'm very much here in a personal capacity. In a personal capacity. But I wonder, as from a personal capacity, what has your reaction to the controversy been? I, I'm very upset by it, really, because although Julie says that the Society of Authors is too posh to be a union. And it is absolutely true that it was founded by Alfred Lord Tennyson, which gives you a sense of just how old and venerable an institution it is. It it does such superb work for authors, many of whom are absolutely on the breadline. Most authors are not well paid at all. And the work that it does, I think, is absolutely irreplaceable. And I've seen for myself the incredible work that the institution does in defending authors' interests. And at the moment, whether it's Amazon, whether it's streaming services, the conglomerate, the international conglomerates have are holding the whip hand over most authors at the moment. So the work of the Society of Authors is as important as it has ever been. However, the problem is, I think, that just as things have changed since the time of Tennyson, the Society of Authors had to adapt to kind of changing modes of production and all kinds of things over the course of the 20th century. So in the 21st century, it's evident that the issue of how authors relate to one another has been absolutely turbocharged by the existence of social media and particularly by Twitter. So all the debates really that Julie's talking about happened on Twitter. And whereas back in the Tweedy days of, I don't know, Conan Doyle or whatever, there would be communists and they would be high Tories and they would both be in the Society of Authors and it would be absolutely fine because they'd never meet each other. They'd never have the opportunity to kind of, they wouldn't be going to the same clubs, I guess, and having heated debates. Now, people are um, can, canning swap opinions on Twitter and authors, of course, are famously opinionated. That's often why they become authors, because they have things to say and they feel very, very strongly about issues. So I think that the difficulty is that people who say, like, say, the chair of the Society of Authors, but maybe generally people on the committee, the risk is, is that their opinions that they express on Twitter may be taken as the expression of what the society thinks. That's not the case, but that is, it's very easy that that's, that's how it could be taken. And I think the problem for the society is that it's not it's not the society's job to have an opinion on trans issues you know absolutely people are entitled to express their opinion but the the problem is that it becomes you know as julie has expressed i guess i i guess julie the reason that you feel it should be wound, you you say you want to leave it and and set up a new a new 
authors union, which I, I think would be very, very difficult to do. I think the problem is that because people, because authors are kind of piling into each other on social media, there's huge pressure on Nicholas Solomon, who is, you know, basically runs it and, and all the officials there to say, you know, which side are you, which side are you taking? They shouldn't be taking either side. They should, they should be providing a kind of free framework in which these opinions can be swapped. That's absolutely my point. It is not the Society of Authors' job or even right to have an opinion on trans rights. And that's exactly how we want it. Those of us that have spoken out against Joanne Harris's behaviour, her tweeting, her subtweeting, her retweeting, which to us seems like a form of targeting and bullying and certainly has resulted in that. And it is absolutely not the job of the Society of Authors to decide who is worth defending and who is not. And this is our problem. I do have to say, though, there's no way on earth I would dream of even attempting to set up a new organisation to represent authors. I don't have time to take my dog for a walk. What I'm saying is I don't believe if things are set in stone in the way that they appear to be, after the recent annual general, general meeting, if things don't change, then I think it's not fit for purpose. And it may well be that it is so old and establishment in the way that it is that it needs a root and branch reform. I think that there is scope for reform. So I think one thing is that, say, people who are elected to the chair and people who elect the committee should, to a degree, accept that they are in the, you know, they, they have a slight quality of a constitutional monarch. And just for their term, they should kind of basically accept the self-discipline that means that you're not going on Twitter and and f- letting rip on obviously controversial issues with which large numbers of members will disagree. The other thing is, is that both sides in the argument need to acknowledge the legitimacy of the rival opinions. And I think that that is, there's been a particular problem with this around another issue that the Society of Authors got embroiled in. And that surrounds the the case of Kate Clanchy, Orwell Prize winning writer, uh, who was accused of using racist language by other writers on Twitter. So inevitably that also blew up. And this debate existed in the the context of a kind of uh, a a charter of behaviour that the Society of Authors had issued, which basically said that, you know, we accept freedom of speech, we accept that both sides have a, in an argument have a right to express their opinions. But I guess that in a, you know, a case of racism, those who feel that they're defending people against racists are going to say, well, that, you know, these, these people are unsupportable. They are beyond the pale. We're not going to extend them the right to free speech. But Kate Clanchy would absolutely deny that she's a racist. So I think that that is an issue that the society needs to sort out. So those would be the two areas that I, you know, I'm, I'm nothing to do with it anymore. I haven't been the chair for at least you know, over a decade now. But I would suggest that those are two areas that need sorting out. A degree of self-regulation from the chair and the members of the committee and an absolute acceptance on the part of all writers who sign up to the Society of Authors that they have to treat their opponents in good faith. I don't disagree with that. I mean, I'm no free speech absolutist, actually. This is not the ticket. I'm not arguing for unbridled, unlimited, absolutist free speech. That is not my argument. My argument is that we have very good functioning laws in this country that should do the job. 
that we stay within the law, that we treat each other respectfully, but that this is fairly applied to all authors. If we think about the fact that we have female authors that have been sacked from their publishing jobs, Gillian Phillips, Rachel Rooney left hers, is now a lorry driver. Many other women who can't, dare speak out because they think they'll lose their agents and the publishing deal that they're clinging on to for dear life. This is not happening to men who speak out about controversial issues. This is something that's facing women. And there's an, a level of hypocrisy here that we have to call out. Yes, both sides should accept the other argument. This is what we have been doing, those of us that are critical of transgender extremist ideology. But the same courtesy is not afforded to us when we're targeted with death threats, and I've been targeted with death threats, where we've lost publishing deals because of wrong think, and the society we have found, and we are arguing, does not defend us in the way that it would men who are, for example, accused of vile misogyny. Well, that's why I think it is very important that the society and all the members of the society accept what the terms of engagement should be. And clearly, this is something that has grown up over the past decade with the the increasing use by writers of Twitter and other social media. And it requires a massive recalibration. And this should be a wake up call, I think. Thank you, Julie and Tom. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full? I'm William Moore, and I hope you'll join me again next week.